the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Richard Green. International efforts to broker a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas have suffered a setback as Israel reportedly recalled its negotiating team from the internationally mediated negotiations in Cairo. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday accused the U.S.-designated terrorist group of hobbling the high-stakes negotiations by sticking to delusional demands. Netanyahu's remarks raised concerns over the fate of the talks. The internationally mediated negotiations in Cairo were taking place even as deadly violence continued both in the Gaza Strip and along Israel's border with Lebanon, where low-level fighting has continued since the war broke out. Israel faced growing international pressure on Wednesday to hold off on a planned assault on the last refuge for displaced Palestinians in southern Gaza. Reuters correspondent Rachel Graham has more. The World Health Organization's representative for the West Bank and Gaza, Richard Peppercorn, said an offensive in Rafah could overwhelm its already overburdened health system. Military activities in this area, this densely populated areas, would be, of course, an, an, an unphenomenal uh, catastrophe uh, and an enormous, uh, uh, would even further expand <clears throat> the humanitarian disaster beyond imaginations. Israel says it takes steps to minimize civilian casualties and accuses Hamas fighters of hiding among civilians, including in hospitals and shelters, something the militant group denies. That was Reuters correspondent Rachel Graham. Bring them home now! Meanwhile, families of Israelis held hostage by Hamas since October 7th urged the International Criminal Court on Wednesday to ensure justice for their loved ones and to help bring them home. Standing in the rain, families and activists waved Israeli flags and chanted, Bring them home. This is VOA News. The U.S. National Security Advisor says he'll meet on Thursday with a powerful congressman who wants President Joe Biden to release information regarding what the lawmaker says is an urgent national security threat. More from VOA's chief and national correspondent, Steve Herman, in Washington. At the White House press briefing room lectern on Wednesday, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan expressed surprise that the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner has made a public call for the administration to declassify details about an unspecified foreign threat. Ultimately, these are decisions for the president to make. The congressman has told his colleagues they should urgently go to a secure room to receive a classified briefing about what media reports quoting U.S. officials say. That refers to Russia's attempt to develop a space-based anti-satellite nuclear weapon. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. Indonesian Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto declared victory in Wednesday's presidential election after an official result showed him trouncing two rivals. The former Special Forces commander clinched about 58% of the votes, according to unofficial quick counts by four independent pollsters, more than double that of his nearest opponent. Subianto needs to win more than 50% of all votes cast, along with at least 20% of the vote in half of Indonesia's provinces once the official returns are announced to avoid a second round in June. This is the 72-year-old Subianto's third attempt at the top job in the world's third largest democracy. He was defeated in his previous attempts by outgoing President Joko Widodo. Special Counsel Jack Smith has urged the U.S. Supreme Court to allow a historic case against former President Donald Trump to proceed. Here's AP correspondent Lisa Dwyer. Special.
Jack Smith is urging the Supreme Court to let former President Donald Trump's 2020 election interference case proceed to trial without further delay. Prosecutors were responding to a Trump team request from earlier in the week, asking for a continued pause in the case. As the court considers whether to take up the question of whether Trump is immune from prosecution for official acts while in the White House. Two lower courts have overwhelmingly rejected that position, prompting Trump to ask the high court to intervene. Smith asked that if the Supreme Court does want to take the case, that they hear arguments in March and issue a final ruling by late June. I'm Lisa Dwyer. Issues in the news is VOA's premier news discussion program. Our in-depth analysis goes beyond the headlines, providing you with the inside story on both domestic and international news. This Issues in the News, VOA's premier news discussion program. I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Buck in Washington. Today is Thursday, February 15. And here are some of the stories we are covering. Ghana's President Akufuado replaces his finance minister in a cabinet shakeup. The reshuffle of the president is targeted at compensating unemployed members of his party and not targeted at having any impact in our economic restoration. Botswana's opposition slams electoral body for benchmarking in Zimbabwe. U.S. House Intelligence Committee chair calls for Biden to re- release classified information about an urgent national security threat. Hundreds of women dressed in black demonstrating Kinshasa demanding a halt to the war in eastern DRC. A new report suggests Africa's agri-food sector is a solution to youth unemployment. Investments in agro-processing and strengthened forward links to marketing and trade and backward links, production will become a core employment-generating sector in agri-food systems. In South African shark spotters keep swimmers safe. Those stories plus our Black History Month representation are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Ghanaian President Nana Akufado has removed his finance minister, Ken Oforiata, replacing him with Mohamed Ami Adam. The outgoing minister has been spearheading Ghana's negotiations with the International Monetary Fund for loans to support the country's economic reforms. His replacement is part of a major cabinet reshuffle announced on Wednesday by President Akufuado. No government official was available to speak on the cabinet changes. Mustafa Bandi is the Deputy General Secretary of the Opposition National Democratic Congress Party, the NDC. He tells me the reshuffle is an attempt by the president to compensate unemployed members of his party and not to improve the economy. First of all, these are very difficult times for the people of Ghana and for that matter, the governance of our country, where clearly the government admits that the finance minister is a failed minister. The finance minister is, you know, said to have been involved in a lot of financial scandals including issues of conflict of interest, using his private companies 
as receivers of shares in fund arrangements internationally. And this is not, you know, a close secret. Everybody is aware of that. You speak so uh, poorly about the outgoing finance minister, but the president has expressed confidence in the performance of the minister. And uh, as you mentioned, the president reappointed him. So if he were not performing, he would not get the appointment. Well, what is rather sad is that this is the first president and whose administration the whole nation, including his political party, admits that they have failed, yet he thinks that they are performing. The president, Akufado, is clearly out of touch. He is not in sync with the reality on the ground. He doesn't know that Ghanaians are suffering. The reshuffle of the president is targeted at compensating unemployed members of his party and not targeted at having any impact in our economic restoration. Let's put things in perspective and remind our listeners that Ghana goes to elections sometime this year. So what do you say to people who say you're all playing politics, that nothing the president does at this moment will please you? Well, we are speaking to past records, infrastructural transformation for this country, evidence-based transformation, public policies that are impacted in the life of our people. We have been transparent to our people. So we are speaking to those records. Today, you have, on the other hand, a vice president who comes to say, no, we have advised the president as an economic management team, and the president refused to take our advice. Hence, that is why our country is in a mess. Who can develop confidence in this kind of government? For the first time in the history of the world, will a vice president say that the president didn't take my advice, but he retained himself as a vice president for seven years? How can you trust people who are not honest? How can you trust a government that does not take responsibility of a problem that they have created or they have not created? President Akufado and his government will not do that. Simply, they are trying to rebrand the vice president, who is a puppet for the president, for the president to be in control for a third term. And that the people of Ghana says they are not ready for. Maybe this question I should put to the government when I get any of the officials. The finance minister was at the helm when the latest loan was uh, of $3 billion was uh, negotiated with the International Monetary Fund. And some people say that loan was beginning to yield some uh, results. So why replace the finance minister? Well, the president should be answering that if people can be proud of taking loans, then that is how hopeless this government can be. I thought that they would be proud that they have elevated poverty. I thought that they would be talking about jobs they have provided for the ordinary Ghanaians. I would think that they would be proud of having stabilized our energy crisis. I would be thinking that they have succeeded in approaching corruption in our government. And so you shouldn't celebrate somebody who takes loans. Why? An achievement is that you have, you have procured a loan. Is that an achievement? Are we not going to pay? If you are credible, you should have a loan. But if you are efficient, you should depend on your internally generated funds. Mustafa Bandi is the Deputy General Secretary of Ghana's main opposition, National Democratic Congress. He was speaking with us from the capital, Accra. The U.S. National Security Advisor says he will meet on today, Thursday, with a powerful congressman who wants President Joe Biden to release information regarding what the lawmaker says is an urgent national security threat. More from U.S. Chief National Correspondent Steve Herman in Washington. At the White House press briefing room lectern on Wednesday, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan expressed surprise that the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner has made a public call 
for the administration to declassify details about an unspecified foreign threat. Ultimately, these are decisions for the president to make. But in the meantime, the most important thing is we have the opportunity to sit in a classified setting and have the kind of conversation uh, with the House intelligence leadership that I, in fact, had scheduled before uh, Congressman Turner went out today. The congressman has told his colleagues they should urgently go to a secure room to receive a classified briefing about what he is calling a destabilizing foreign military capability. Media reports quoting U.S. officials say that refers to Russia's attempt to develop a space-based anti-satellite nuclear weapon. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. Several hundred women dressed in black demonstrated Wednesday in Kinshasa, demanding a halt to the war in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo between the army and the rebel forces. The French news agency AFP says the march, called by Gender, Family and Children Minister Giselle Ndaya, brought together mainly politicians and civil servants. Mungwagwa Zindura is the president of the Center for Political and Strategic Studies in the DRC and a former spokesperson for President Joseph Kabila. It has views Douglas Mpuga that demonstrations alone will not end the fighting in the eastern part of the country. The problem here, again, you know, um, I can't say enough about this, is that this uh, looks like a propaganda ploy is not what is needed. What is needed is action on the ground. The government needs to get uh, their acts together and not to expect some magical thing to happen where Rwanda will just bow because uh, there was a demonstration in Kinshasa. They need to be on the battleground, making sure they're giving the means to the soldiers to fight the war against uh, the aggression uh, on our country. The women, and unlike other protests, like the one which was there over the weekend, this one was peaceful and uh, led by government official to the government. What was the purpose exactly? Exactly. This is where the problem is, you know, is that uh, now uh, everybody is trying to find a way to blame somebody for the war. And, uh, you know, people are trying to get themselves seen during the war. But this is not really the problem here. See, you know, this was led by the minister of gender, children and family. And uh, she's talking about supporting the action of the government. No, that's not what we need. We don't need... Uh, uh, people talking so much about the war. What we need is for the government to make sure that soldiers are adequately paid. As this happens, uh, the uh, situation in Eastern Yara Congo is a bit tense. And uh, what's the government doing about it apart from having demonstrations in Kinshasa? Yeah, they exactly. This is where exactly where the problem is. Where they are supposed to be concentrating their efforts is to make sure that our soldiers uh, have the capacity to fight. But this is not what is going on. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk. Uh, there's a lot of issues and citing the population to say this, to lay blame on the international community. The international community is not going to fight the war for Congolese people. Uh, right now, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukrainians are fighting the war. There's no international community there trying to go fight Russia. Absolutely not. You know, that's what the government should be doing. Mulengwa Zihindura is the president of the Center for Political and Strategic Studies in the DRC and a former spokesperson for President Joseph Kabila. He spoke from Kansas City with viewers uh, Douglas Mpuga.
listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Botti in Washington. Today is Thursday, February 15th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A new report says Africa's high-grade food sector, the processing, packaging, and the selling of locally produced food could be the key to boosting employment rates, income, and food security in the continent. Mohamed Yusuf reports from viewers Africa News Center in Nairobi. Experts in agriculture, engineering, ecology, nutrition, and food security unveiled a 140-page report in Uganda Wednesday looking at challenges faced by young Africans and the education and skills needed for jobs in the agri-food sector. Rhoda Tumisime, a former commissioner for rural economy and agriculture at the African Union, is one of the experts. She said the food business can improve the lives of African youths. Food trade provides an opportunity for youth to create jobs for themselves in agribusiness and improve socioeconomic development. Various ICTs can transform agricultural markets. Investments in agroprocessing and the strengthened forward links to marketing and trade and backward links, production that result in these value chains Will, became, will become a core employment-generating sector in agri-food systems. The report provides examples. In Zambia, authorities launched Yapasa, a project to increase income for rural youth. The project in the Central African country promoted collaboration between different actors in the agriculture sector, mainly small farmers and better connections between small producers and larger agribusinesses. Coordinating with the UN Food and Agriculture Agency, the International Labour Organization and the Zambian government, Yapasa created 3,000 jobs and improved 5,000 youth-led rural enterprises. The World Bank says Africa's combined food and beverage markets are forecast to be valued at $1 trillion by 2030. Osmane Pedien is the co-chair of the panel that released the report. He told VOA it is important to craft youth-oriented policies to improve the business environment. Making policies much more sensitive to the needs and uh, the, the um, ambitions of the youth is going to be important. Creating that space uh, for engagement with youth is going to be something extremely important to do. Sustaining all of that into the couple of decades to come uh, will require being able to sustain growth in the context of a changing climate, not just in terms of adaptation, uh, being resilient, but also being able to find new ways of doing business. According to the African Development Bank, 11 million youth joined the market looking for jobs each year, but only about 3 million formal jobs are created annually. In Africa, 120 million people between the ages of 15 and 35 are unemployed. Uganda's Makerere University engineering lecturer Dorothy Okelo told VOA there's a need to connect opportunities in the agriculture field with the students' educational background. Can we have, for example, uberization, if I may use the word, uh, of tractor services? So, you know, like services like Hello Tractor, okay, where you have one tractor being made available to a number of, uh, of farmers. So how do we creatively use engineering to come up with solutions for that? 
if I may look at people who are in the creatives, fine art or industrial art, okay? So at the end of the day, when I have my produce and I want to market it, how should I pitch it to en- en- enhance its appeal factor? On the market. Experts are calling on African government to empower youth by addressing trade barriers, investing in technology, and involving youth in policy formulation and decision making. Mohamed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi. Botswana's coalition of opposition parties has slammed the country's electoral body for traveling to Zimbabwe to benchmark its election procedures, the process by which the performance of a system is assessed for success and emulation. Botswana will hold a general election later this year, and officials with the country's independent electoral commission have been criticized for choosing the example of Zimbabwe, a country that held disputed polls in August 2023. Unkundise Dube reports from Habaruni. The two-day benchmarking trip ended Wednesday and Botswana's independent electoral commission's focus was on management of electoral activities and how to conduct elections. Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, ZEC, Chief Elections Officer Utroelis Laikwana told journalists in Harare that the Botswana delegation will also learn about election publicity activities using radio and social media. While Zimbabwe's 2023 election was disputed, Slaikwana says Botswana's visit is an endorsement of ZEC's conduct of the elections. But the Botswana National Front opposition is displeased with the IEC's trip to Harare, arguing Zimbabwe is not an ideal model for the conduct of free and fair elections. Kitlalifile Mutsehwa is the spokesperson for the opposition Botswana National Front. One would have expected the IEC to benchmark with more developed democracies and systems with effective electoral institutions as an indication that they really want to achieve excellence in their mandate. The mission of Botswana's IEC's benchmarking in Zimbabwe is simple, just to learn how to rig an election period. Lawrence Oketitze of the Botswana Patriotic Front shares similar sentiments. We know, for instance, that Zimbabwe uh, for the past two decades has not been in a position where uh, they've run credible elections. Uh, the election has been stolen time from time, uh, time after time, and then now we see a situation where in the middle of an electoral process, the IEC in Botswana says they're going to Zimbabwe to benchmark. In any case, if you wanted to benchmark on how to run elections, you're not going to run to Zimbabwe. The IEC, in a statement released Wednesday, says the visit to Zimbabwe was specifically to look at ZEC's accreditation machine for election observers. International observers criticized the presidential election in Zimbabwe last August, saying it fell short of international standards and was conducted in an atmosphere of intimidation and fear. The winner, President Emerson Mnangagwa, insisted that the election was conducted transparently, fairly in broad daylight. But Botswana Vice President Slamba Sohwane, addressing Parliament on Tuesday, said there is no need to disparage Zimbabwe. It's a sovereign state. These people are our neighbours. Yes, some observers may have said what they said, but uh, this has been said about many countries. When we castigate Zimbabwe, we think that Zimbabwe is a sovereign state. It's doing as good as any other pa- countries. If you have got nothing to say, Nothing good to say about Zimbabwe. Just keep quiet. Grant Masterson, director at the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa, says despite criticism, there are positives in Zimbabwe's electoral system. The decision has both positive and negative implications. From a technical perspective, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission has performed very well in key areas of election management. 
most notably in civic and voter education campaigns, as well as stakeholder engagement. They really have a lot of good practices to teach other electoral commissions. On the other side of the coin, of course, there is the consideration that the elections delivered in Zimbabwe have had huge question marks about their integrity. Zimbabwe says other electoral organizations from the region, including from Lesotho and Ethiopia, have visited to benchmark on conducting elections. For VOA News, Havoroni Botswana. A unique program called Shark Spotters is helping keep water lovers safe. They key stock has this report from Cape Town, South Africa. Rosario Landor is one of 22 shark spotters operating at some of Cape Town's most popular beaches like Musenberg and Fishhook. Another 14 spotters work further north in Plettenberg Bay, where the program started after two fatal shark attacks in 2022, the last shark-related fatalities on record in South Africa. The spotters sit in huts dotted along the mountainside. Um, when I see a shark, um, I got a small cell phone that I activate the siren from up here. And the siren goes down on the, uh, goes off on the beach. So, yeah, and then I just inform my beach spotter, like, where is the shark, the position of the shark, um, what's the shark doing, where it is, and if it's moving out or, you know, and then he just has to put up the appropriate flag. Different coloured flags have different meanings. Green means spotting conditions are good. Black means that spotting conditions are poor, but no sharks have been seen. Red means a shark has been spotted far from the area used by swimmers and poses no threat, so the beach isn't cleared. White with a black shark means a shark is near the beach and swimmers need to get out of the water. According to the Shark Spotters website, there have only been 28 shark attacks along the Cape Peninsula since 1960. Seven of those were fatal. But in the last 10 years, there have been no reported attacks at Cape Town's beaches. Since 2004, we've recorded over 2,500 white shark sightings. And during that time, we've obviously kept people away from the sharks. And so those are a potential number of incidents that we've avoided. Besides the early warning system, weather permitting, the shark spotters can also deploy an eco-friendly shark exclusion net to separate swimmers and sharks at Fishhook Beach. The group is also involved in educating the public about sharks and their role in creating an ecological balance. So obviously if you remove uh, predators, then you have overabundance of prey, which then can also then uh, cause the prey of those prey to then decrease. But the shark spotters can't be everywhere. Senior scientist at Wild Trust, Jennifer Olbers, says, for example, shark spotting won't work in KwaZulu-Natal because of the high energy coastline and lack of high vantage points. She says cameras might be an option in areas like these. Tariq Hassim is a former lifeguard who survived an encounter with the Great White. He says he relies on the shark spotters to keep him and swimmers safe. As a lifeguard, we've worked with shark spotters every morning, just radioing, and it helps us know where we can't see. It's just, it's just so much better to know where the sharks are. Asim says he hopes shark spotters, which turns 20 this year, will continue its good work and help ensure that the only place most people see sharks close up is in catch and release aquariums like these. Vicky Stark, VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa.
It's time now for our Black History Month and African History presentation for today, February 15. On this day, 1968, Henry Lewis became the first African-American to lead a symphony orchestra in the United States, the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. He began studying piano at the age of five and later learned to play the clarinet, as well as several string instruments. And during this Black History Month, we want to tell you about Thurgood Marshall, the first black to be appointed Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Before that, he was director of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Thurgood Marshall won a famous case, Brown versus the Board of Education, which desegregated public schools in the United States. Marshall died on January 24, 1993, at the age of 84. Did you know that John Brown was a radical white abolitionist who is famous for his participation in an anti-slavery warfare in the United States for his 1859 raid on the Federal Armory in Harpers Ferry, Virginia? Brown hoped that the attack on the armory would rouse the local slaves to rise and claim their freedom, but his plan did not completely materialize, and Brown was captured, tried in Charleston, Virginia, and sentenced to be hanged for inciting a slave rebellion. Those are your Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 15th. That's it for this Thursday, February 15th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton in Washington saying, have a great day, and please be safe whatever you do. Bad, loud,